This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. Hi, I'm Jessica Morrison. The Binar One Cube satellite was released from the International Space Station on the 6th of October 2021 and made contact with ground control two weeks later. In this special part two, I follow on from our earlier episode with Binar project manager Ben Hartig and I speak with the director of Curtin Space Science and Technology Centre, Professor Phil Bland, and the deputy director, Renee Sayers. We chatted about what's next for the Binar Space Program, including its social, economic and environmental impacts. If you'd like to find out more, please listen to part one of the episode on our feed or visit binarspace.com. How did you feel to see Binar One released into low Earth orbit and then eventually making contact with it? Can you talk me through that? You start. Oh, start. Well, there's two very separate things there. So the moment of watching it go out of the International Space Station and seeing this gorgeous, tiny little cube, little 10 by 10 by 10 square centimetres going out and into space and seeing literally it in front of clouds and the International Space Station there and, and having the cross to the mission control, all of that just literally took your breath away because you've been working for however many years and looking you know over each other's shoulders and supporting each other in in this idea and then doing it and then seeing it coming together having that crystallize in a moment is is just awe-inspiring and it yeah lots of squeals so what she said and uh, and but it was that i think the part that really got me was that um seeing it and i'm i actually blinked when it got Flipped out, and then they repeated it. So we got a kind of action replay, and I saw that. Um, but then seeing it against the clouds with the other two, that was just magical. Thinking that okay, here is a thing that I've held, and now it's in space. And here's a thing that we've built, and that our team has built, and now it's in space. That one uh, that just completely blew me away. And then what about when you heard it for the first time and you made contact with it? Like, what, 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 can you explain what you heard and the importance of that and talk me through that yeah. a little bit? So, uh, so it was uh, two weeks after and the guys were trying lots of different things to try and get in touch with it. Uh, we were getting pretty worried and, you know, it was, I mean, 95% of the, of the kind of, you know, mentally you think, okay, what constitutes success in a project like this? And getting it there, and then having something meet all the specs that it needs to, to get blipped down into space. For me, that was kind of 90%. But you still want it to work, right? <laughs> you still want to hear from it. So we were getting pretty worried, and, uh, and, and definitely, you know, we were at the point where I was saying to the folks, like, You've done a great job. This is, you know, it was real kind of morale boost time for a team. And then we heard from it and I got a text from Dan. Uh, he had managed to get in touch with it. I think he got an update while he was on the freeway. Uh, and hot, hot spotting off yeah. his phone, sitting in the passenger seat with his laptop driving. How cool is that? Yeah, driving yeah. down so, the freeway. Yeah. So. And what, and for those listening, what does it, sound like when you hear it it's basically so it's so what we we've been trying to get in touch with the the main downlink data downlink data set 
and what the guys are trying to do is get kind of a secondary beacon working so the kind of your sort of sputnik bleep 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 type thing and that's what they got working so that's what they managed to do so it basically means then that actually the whole thing is alive because it it wouldn't be able to do that if the spacecraft weren't operational so that was really great news and what's some of the data you're hoping to acquire from binar one yeah, so at this stage, the first bit of the mission was to look at the engineering data. I mean, BINAR-1 is the first of many, and so it is ultimately a technology demonstrator. We want to make sure that all the bits that we have built here, you know, at Kirsten from scratch, that they're working the way they should be. And we were hoping to get engineering data, um, I guess the critical subsystems and how they're operating and be able to, to get enough so we can get a pattern to look at over, you know, several several weeks would be ideal to understand, yeah, how's it working and, and what are the sort of the requirements, what are the, the limits that it's operating in and, and just get to know this bit of technology that has been designed and developed and tested and ultimately launched all right here from Curtin by our team. And because that's going to lay the foundations for all of our other missions as we go on. So with BINAR1, it is the beginning and we've got uh, six more to come. So that's seven in about 18 months. And all of that is laying the groundwork ultimately for a mission to the moon. It's like you read my mind, Renee. Um, <laughs> obviously, you've, you've for those... every subsequent question there. <laughs> what do I say there? That's <laughs> right. For, for listeners who listened to our first part one of BINAR and space the future of BINAR and uh, space science would know that this is a program. There's lots of different satellites after BINAR-1. So the, the plan is to eventually send a mission to the moon, but between now and then you're planning to deploy six more satellites. So what are you hoping to test in those upcoming missions, in those upcoming satellites? What's the difference? <laughs> so uh, so we are, we've got three more coming up in the next kind of batch. Uh, they're all going to get launched together in the same kind of spacecraft and they're going to go up together and then they're all going to get blipped out of the space station together so it's going to look like the last one except that those three will all be ours which will be a lot of fun cool. uh, which will be really cool and uh, and they are going to be doing testing more advanced comms they're going to have deployable panels so they're so solar panels are going to open up on each of those tiny little cubes so they'll start off as the 10 by 10 cubes and yep. then expand and then expand out. which is going to look really cool that's Very. going to look really cool, cool. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we're testing out radiation shielding in there with radiation sensors that's going to help inform us with the moon mission about what we want to do to protect that spacecraft as it goes off there's going to be a kind of a re-entry experiment that we're testing as well. So there's actually quite a lot that's happening in those that's new and different and yummy. When you say re-entry, is that because obviously the others will disintegrate exactly. over a period of time? Yeah. But you're testing for one of them to actually potentially re-enter Earth intact or? Yeah, so, so what we've got, we've got a, a concept that we are pushing. So one of our kind of R&D paths is to develop uh, what's known as entry, descent and landing system, but for a spacecraft, but for a CubeSat. And this has been played with with a couple of groups around the world, ESA and NASA as well. Um, we're in actually quite a good position to test it because we can do you know, rapid kind of iterative R&D. It doesn't cost us an arm and a leg. We, we don't have to spend 10 years planning something. And it's the kind of engineering that you want to, that's a bit more of a sort of suck it and see type thing. 
very cool if we can actually bring stuff back from low Earth orbit. So bring spacecrafts or experiments back. Very, very cool because we'll be able to do that in missions to other planets. I mean, basically anything that has an atmosphere, we'd be able to get a CubeSat to the surface of those planets, which would be yummy. Your program manager, Ben Hartig, <clears throat> in part one of this series, we'll call it, chatted about briefly the moon mission. What do you want that to look like? What are some of the preliminary details you might be able to share with us? There's a, um, there's a really nice niche for, uh, for CubeSat class spacecraft in the next 10 years, I think, in planetary exploration. Because previously, all space missions have had to need a kind of a dedicated launch vehicle, right? So one big rocket per spacecraft. And that's a huge additional expense when, you know, you want to send something to the moon or to an asteroid. In the next decade, you're going to have a lot of big missions going to the moon to do a whole bunch of other things. So having something that's small enough to ride along there cuts out a huge amount of the cost and that's a big opportunity. So we've got a concept that'll do kind of geophysical exploration at the moon, getting a really nice magnetic survey. It's the kind of thing that companies do in WA all the time and we're going to be doing that at the moon and uh, NASA are really excited about that. They've kind of said over a coffee they're there. Maybe they could give us a free ride if we built a spacecraft. Not many people say they've had coffee with NASA. <laughs> I love that. Um, the amount of human-made satellites and space debris orbiting Earth is becoming a bit of an issue with mission launches. Can you talk about how, as a CubeSat, much smaller, Binar 1 and its future siblings, mm. we'll call them, present some more sustainable alternative to traditional satellites? Renee, Ben. Um, sorry, not Ben. Phil, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Renee no. or Phil, either, either or. Yeah, so it's interesting because with uh, larger, even though we still call them small satellites, larger satellites, you know, they, they may not be up there for as long. So when we look at small CubeSats, particularly like BIN R1, I mean, its life in orbit is somewhere between 18 months, two years, depending on space weather and other bits and pieces, how it's interacting with the upper atmosphere. Um, and so what you're going to get is a, a mission that actually, you know, it's not going to stay up there forever. What you're going to get is the mission at, at some point will end and literally the spacecraft will burn up in, in our atmosphere. And so that's one element of looking at spacecraft up there in orbit if you have that sort of plan you're not just creating these giant big spacecraft popping them up on orbit and then you can't really do anything about them at the end of life or if you know systems or technology need to be updated or upgraded you can't just sort of pop up there and, and do that very easily and so there's a lot of debris and then of course the issue in space if there are um, the Kessler syndrome if you have bits of debris interacting. It's like literally a paint speck, um, something the size of a marble can absolutely cripple a spacecraft, right? Wow. And so, yeah, so the movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock and, uh, you know, a spacecraft disintegrating in orbit and then it kind of ripping through where the International Space Station is, like that's an actual scenario that's, that, that could happen. And we have seen damage and literally spacecrafts be rendered useless because of small, small 
small, the size of marbles or a paint fleck, but it's traveling at the speed of a bullet. So of course, you know, that's going to rip through an astronaut, you know, their suit. Uh, they're going to provide a lot of damage, particularly if it hits on something critical like a solar panel. And so therefore your power budget's going to be out of whack and ultimately you're going to have just dead tech up there orbiting around. And if that wax into another bit of debris, then you're creating more debris. And so it's this sort of like runaway effect. Oh, and so craziness up there. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. And so, you know, that's, a, that's actually one of the things that the space agency in Australia was, was concerned about is making sure that, you know, whatever we're doing, it's sustainable and that's what we're contributing to. And the small spacecraft, particularly, well, it's nano class, so that these CubeSats that Binar One, you know, that space that they occupy, I mean, it is one thing. It, it'll have a limited life up there and it will deorbit. And I mean, it'll ultimately become a Binar, right? Binar is the Noongar word for fireball and, um, and that'll be its ultimate... It's so ultimate cool. end. Like yeah. Very nice, yeah. very poetic. Well, it starts, you know, with the yeah. Desert Fireball Network, the origins of our of our, you know, center and the work and the heritage from from that research program and technology and and the land with Binar. It's really beautiful. It goes to the future of Binar. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the title of the podcast. Great so I love that. Of, uh, cycle of life of, of life. space. We got life. there. <laughs> and part of the program's vision is to socialize space. And Phil, I caught something on your LinkedIn recently. Um, you did a big shout out to a few organisations who were helping in the process of getting in contact with Binar One, which was great to see the solid support that the program has and some pretty heavy, you know, heavy hitters yeah, and big names great. there, which is great. But the thing that really struck me was that you talked about the amateur community and what they did. And that really spoke to me about socialising space. So yeah. can you kind of talk to us about what are the next steps to make that happen, whether it be with the amateur community or with schools yeah. or startups and things like that? Yeah, it, I mean, it's been a wonderful experience with Binar One and how engaged the amateur radio community has been with us and what a huge help they've been. Uh, it's just been lovely, our engineers you know, talking to them, iterating it with them. They've been helping, you know, as the thing, we only see it for like 10 minutes as it crosses our sky. That whole community has been helping around the world. It's been pretty- Sort of keep helping you keep a longer track keep, on it, Exactly, right? and they can be listening out for it when we can't, when it's over the horizon for us. And that's been fantastic. And I think hopefully that's also been fun for them because they've been a huge help to us in this project. So that's been lovely. We're gonna continue that and get schools interested on the amateur radio side as well. So we've got a design, this is a big thing that Ben has been driving, a design for antenna that high schools can set up. Basically kind of a template that our engineers have put together, just stuff you can buy in Bunnings, set up your own antenna at your high school, it costs like two, 300 bucks. And, uh, and then the high schools can listen out for the spacecraft, and that gets young people excited about it as well. There's a bunch of other outreach stuff that we're doing. Yeah. yeah that... I was going to say as an engagement specialist <laughs> yeah, at the Space right. Science and Technology yeah. Centre, what is the future of socialising space looking like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really what Binar has done and the team, you know, it's opening doors in, in service of others. Space is hard and doing it for the first time, like we have here in WA, has been really, really hard. And so if we're not able to share the process, the lessons learned and ultimately the opportunities onwards, we won't have the growth at, of, at scale that we need to have to take on the challenges that we're seeing today and that we're facing 
facing tomorrow and also have this this next generation that everyone's talking about you know um, cracking open an Australian space sector that can do some great things here nationally and connect and compete internationally so really it does start with access to space and what that actually means you know when we talk about the radio antenna and the amateur radio community well that's the gateway right so once you have something in space you've got to be able to communicate with it and so without needing to go through the the, the it's like the ground floor right so you know without needing to go through building it yet yourself, you're still able to have real world, hands-on, something that's technically challenging, but so incredibly rewarding. You're doing something you've never done before and you're showing that it's possible and you're bringing the school and the community together around that. So that can increases pride and increases ownership. We want space to be for everyone here in WA and, and across Australia because it hasn't been beforehand. Um, and so that's the real power that we see of, of Binner and the platform. It also means that it's a nice runway to get people excited after getting their hands, you know, dirty with, you know, cutting their teeth on these real world, you know, technology challenges to start looking at, well, what do I want to do? If I could design an experiment or build an instrument or code a program and have that up in space, what does that actually look like? And because of the way Binar is being designed, it's, um, you know, we, we, we print them all on um, the, the guts of the spacecraft, the bus. It's all been designed on a single printed circuit board, which means that instead of buying your spacecraft from, you know, supply chains all around the world and having to sit in a lab and assemble it, often you're increasing the human error, often because they're really expensive, you don't know what's going on in on the inside, you know, it's not your IP, you can't mess around with it. And you certainly, you know, don't want to try and break it too much because, you know, you only got one and you've spent a lot of money in getting to that point. And so with us, we've been able to kind of flip that on its head a little bit, do a lot of the design on, on, the, on the actual printed circuit board. We're trying to reduce the human error which means that when we print them like mobile phones, you know, the consumer electronic manufacturing, you're actually able to get more of them and you can really try and understand its limits. Uh, as Phil said, knock the corners off it before you actually kick it up into space. And because we can do that, it means we can do some cool things like open up more space on those one U, those CubeSats, for instruments and payloads for our students here at Curtin University and across WA. And we can actually extend that to schools and say, hey schools, hey students, what do you want to do in space? And you know, what problems do you want to solve today? And let's walk down that pathway together and here's a spacecraft and we're here to help and get your hands dirty. And so when you're at the point where you're thinking about what you want to do, making choices around what you want to study or what you want to do, you've got some pretty amazing hands-on experience and real world hearts and minds switched on stuff there. So that's what we're really excited about with Binar. So yeah, could start with the amateur radio community, but really it extends straight into, you know, the people we see all around us here today in WA. That's awesome. In Australia, and particularly here in WA, as we're aware, a lot of our revenue is generated by the mining industry. That's no surprise. How do you see the program's role in helping to diversify our economy? It's, uh, I think it's probably really... probably like you both have good answers <laughs> on this one. <laughs> it's a really big deal. And it's, it's funny because you uh, occasionally I'll see, you know, people say, well, why are we spending money on 
space when we could be doing you know stuff for for the earth or we could be you know why are we wasting money why are we um, not giving it to the health system exactly or... yeah. yeah 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 and uh, and i think it's 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 good to explain to people you know to give them the answer to that and the answer is that you're not wasting money on this that you're making money on this so you know people think of nasa as a, as an organization that you know we like we're sending stuff to other planets, to Mars. NASA, in a single year, gives the US economy around about a three to one return on its investments. And NASA gets like just over 20 billion a year. On a year to year, that puts in about 63 billion into the US economy. On a total life, in terms of all the innovations that comes out of NASA engineering, that increases to about a five, to 10 times multiplier on a single dollar invested. So it's like, in terms of, okay, why are we doing space? We're doing space because <laughs> we, we make a lot of money out of that, right? And, uh, and one of the ways that you do that is to, space is actually um, one of the most direct, uh, the reason why you know advanced economies spend money on basic research is because it has been historically uh, a great driver for their economy. You know, I love it because I love science and I get to do the thing I love, but people who get a dish out of their cash have realized that putting money at these people, yeah. that's right, people like me and my folks every now and then, you know, someone lays a golden egg and, and that's wonderful. Now it turns out that space is almost the most direct link in that chain. Uh, because space missions, you have to come up with innovations to make things work in incredibly difficult environments, you know, very compact energy requirements, huge ranges in temperature, and basically all of that. And the sensors that you build for those spacecraft has almost a direct link into, into applications around the Earth. Most of the sensors that people use for Earth observations, that you know, scientists that we use for weather or communications, most of that stuff came from interplanetary missions, blue sky missions, so it goes directly in. And so in answer to that question, what is it, what's the benefit, and how does it help us diversify, so to make that just very specific, the space economy is currently growing about three times faster than the regular, the rest of the economy. Globally, the space exploration component of that is actually growing at, I think it's 25% a year. So it's kind of nuts. So, you know, I'd flip it around and say to people, why aren't we investing in that? Because it's genuinely a no brainer. And do you? Do you say that? I do, absolutely. Yes, I do. <laughs> Is that your barbecue chat? I say or your dinner party it. Oh, no, that's the whole thing. Yeah. All the way up to the, um, the head of ASA, the, the Australian Space Agency. I say that at anyone I can grab. Yes. So, and happily all of the listeners that are dialing in today. So. That's it. Do you have anything to add, Renee, on that? Well, one? I mean, I mean, yeah. That, I mean, that's that's what's going to get uh, the investment cases over the line, right? In the context of, well, here's actually the facts. Here's the data, and this is why you know it's a no-brainer, as you say. But there's something else to this that is really unique to space, and that is that nothing else inspires just quite like it. 
And if we're wanting to understand diversification opportunities, particularly here in WA, in our state, we've got to think about what is going to move people? What is going to make people be connected to something so grand, so incredible like space and that will require skills, things like STEM skills that we just know are foundational to how we operate. <laughs> We've got to get there somehow and nothing inspires quite like space. And so from one point of view, if you are going to be able to hold up something like a, you know, a really strong space sector in WA, you're, you're holding a beacon out to our community and showing firstly the art of what is possible you know what is it nasa's dead mighty things and the endeavors along that way you develop incredible experiences amazing sets of skills and they can be transferred into a lot of different high tech sectors not just space and i think that's one thing that's really interesting if you want a passport to help navigate an uncertain future and one thing is for certain our future is very uncertain then investing in your stem skills is, is certainly one of the most powerful things that you can do and if you want to like light a fire under people around inspiring them to really chase down those experiences and skills and for them to enjoy it and to and to bring meaning and to grow from that, I mean, there's nothing quite like space that can actually do that for you. Yeah. So there's that argument as well. There's a couple of other lenses we can go for more dif more reasons <laughs> why, but they're, can I they're add pretty to that, nice. Because uh, am I right to? Yeah, of course. Uh, so. Uh, um, absolutely, that's a really good point, Sunshine, and, and I do tend to kind of lead with the, you know, the economics of it because a lot of people don't know that. Mm -hmm, and, yeah. uh, and that's um, literally how you sign it away, right? I know, and uh, um, but it's but it's, you know, it, it struck me when the Perseverance rover landed on Mars that you know people in Australia were watching that at whatever it was three in the morning and and now think about that for a second so uh, so a federal agency in a foreign country is meeting one of its key performance indicators and Australians are dialing in at three in the morning to see whether it's done that so we don't do that for housing and urban development in the US right or, uh, or, or veterans affairs or even our own country but here is something that that is so inspirational and unites the world in achievements like you know China but in a lunar lander there right people were glued to that people are you know it's it is inspirational and and that's why space science missions are very different from space from other space missions now what for instance what spacex is doing with the starlink network is incredible but you don't have people dialing in at 3 a.m to watch a starlink launch you do have people dialing in to watch them build starships and test those because that is a vision about what humans are going to be doing at the moon in 10 years time and that's how you get that's how you get you know there's like 40 undergrads who've been involved in who are currently involved in binar that's how you get young brilliant people bouncing out of bed in the morning by giving them a an inspirational target and wrapping it in this uh, in this I, I mean you know like Renee said space inspires like nothing else um, I think I would love a future where WA is we've got a space industry 
and that is you know we're seeing the rewards on that and that is diversifying our economy and we've got wa students building spacecraft our spacecraft that are flying to the moon i mean how you know i'd be really very proud to be helping that happen i think uh, that would be a pretty nice future so and as ben said you know launching stuff and flying your own things that'll create jobs but going to the moon that's going to create careers and that will redefine i think the generational outlook of who we are as wa and i think when we talk about diversifying the economy we have to think about what what could possibly challenge our identity at that scale and again nothing else comes close to the potential of space. Beautifully put, you too. It leads very nicely in probably my last question, um, talking about inspiration. What inspired you both to work in this area? Well, it all started, Jess, when I was a young girl. I was very annoying and I asked lots of questions, often why, and, 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 and honestly, it was like, you're Often tell about them how you the space. To join the circus. Yeah, yeah, yes, I'm getting there. There's that, an arc, yeah. but yeah. Okay, so bury <laughs> the lead a little bit. Um, so no, honestly, I, um, I I was fascinated by looking at the stars. I grew up in the foothills of Mount Dandenongs in Melbourne, um, and so we actually had a, a decent sky, um, from what I remember. And so I would get like astronomy books given to me as gifts, and they would like pile up. And um, one of the things I used to do was look at the NASA website. So I was about 16 when this particular memory I'm about to share came about. But I would look at the the NASA websites. I loved um, the planetary nebulae. I loved understanding how you know dust and gas can produce stars and ultimately all the things that we see and then sort of cosmology and so a lot of like the philosophical questions around space and and often like taking it to the extreme and like yeah ultimately why we are why we are here and and how even is all of this and so I enjoyed that and so looking on the NASA websites I um, I found this at the time it was called the Office of Space Science and Public Outreach and I wrote an email to them after having that sort of little tingle feeling at the back of my um, at the back of my head and they wrote back and so it was literally be like what is this I, it looks like you're out talking to people about like science and space and things and they yeah they wrote back and they said that's it you know we're either scientists or engineers we've worked on stuff and you know we want to give back to the community or we're teachers or you know we we just want to share share it with the community they said the word um, education and public outreach and so I had a little hunt and there was a place in Australia um, that did outreach um, and it was called science communication and so I sort of saw that there was a post grad in that and so I literally yes Phil went and ran away to join uh, the science circus which was the Australian National University it was a postgrad in science communication it's now a master's program but that literally was I went to uni did an astrophysics degree and ran away to join the science circus um, and then <laughs> spent another decade or so sharing the science joy and, and I guess trying to light other fires of, of, of exploration and wonder in others but yeah, there's something special about space and that, that source of inspiration. I think there's so much diversity in it. And I think it's another reason why I believe that particularly here in WA, but in general, you know, it's going to take our, it, the next step is going to take our diversity and something like space unites like nothing else because we can all find something about it that we can tap into. And, you know, that's my story. And I know it's going to be completely different to other people like you, Phil. What inspired you? <laughs> can I say quick? 
basically that's probably cool. the most quirky answer we've had on the podcast yes. around the circus line. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love the circus, right? It's like, yeah. Shout great. out to the Shell Questacon <laughs> Science Circus. There you go. Uh, so, uh, so I, um, I, I think I got interested or excited about science and space uh, watching the original Cosmos with Carl Sagan, like a lot of kids did, and watching the um, after the after the end of the Apollo missions, I wasn't old enough to uh, to remember them happening. I was born like two months before Apollo Eleven, really? and so so my dad apparently did hold me up and watch it on the telly. So wow. um, so I have been alive and saw it, although no whether you were taking it information. Old. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, but, arguably uh, you have, right? Yeah. Maybe this it. is it's the still, thing. It's there, but it was it was in the aftermath of that, and it was just part of the culture at that time that you know it was still in the sort of post apollo um it was just part of the culture that we've actually been to the moon and and that kind of blew me away one of my earliest memories was the launch of the voyager spacecraft and and i was just fascinated by that and i never ever thought that i would be doing it for a living but those were the things that, that kind of inspired me. So if, if there was a thing that inspired me to become a scientist of any flavor at all, then it was Carl Sagan and it was the Apollo missions. Yeah. I love it. Thank you both so much for chatting with me and our listeners. And it's just been really, really interesting. So thank you so much and good luck with the program. Thanks, Jess. It has a very exciting future. <laughs> thank you, Jess. Thank and you. It's lovely to chat to you about it all as well. It's wonderful to see you. It's been a great chat. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. And if you want to hear from more experts, stay up to date by subscribing to us on your favourite podcast app. Bye for now.